I am George Goddard. I am a trade unionist and also an industrial relations professional. I'm a poet as well, a writer, and I have published a number of uh, collections of poetry. Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. And um, I am generally um, engaged in, in, in literature, in, in political activism, and in industrial relations. This basically is um, what I'm all about. All right. Thank you so much for that, sir. It's an honor to talk to you. So you are currently uh, speaking from me from where? From St. Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean. All right. That is an honor, sir. Okay. So today we are looking at the life and legacy of somebody who is very important for all the African diaspora and even the people that are living in Africa. I'm talking of the person of Marcos Garvey. Now, of course, we are going to uh, learn a lot of things about him through you, uh, his background, his story, and a whole lot of things. So we start with the basis. How would you describe the person of Marcos Garvey, the kind of a brief description of him? Uh, Marcos Garvey was what I would describe as, first and foremost, a black nationalist and a pan-Africanist. Uh, the period, he was born in a period, I think it was 1887. It was the late 1800s. Uh, capitalism internationally was in the throes of one of its cyclical troughs or depressions. Jamaica, where Marcus Garvey was born in St. Anne's Bay in the British West Indies, had only just come out of slavery. In fact, as had the British West Indies just come out of slavery. Social conditions for the mass of black people had not rec recognizably changed in any material way. So this was the period in which Marcus Garvey was born. It was in this period that the clamoring of an oppressed and socially deprived people intensified and the seeds of a philosophy of liberation that went beyond just the emancipation of 1834 uh, to 18, um, 1838 um, was sown in St. Bay, as I say, which was a rural community. Garvey was born there. He went to school there up to sixth standard, which we describe in the Caribbean as primary schooling. And um, life was critical. And after leaving school, he then moved to Kingston, where um, he began to work. He was engaged in printing. He um, developed skills in printing. I would also like to uh, mention that his father seemed to be somewhat of an activist. His, his father spoke on uh, uh, political platforms, trade union platforms, um, in various parts of Jamaica. 
and perhaps some of that rubbed off on him. But then again, as I, said, as I have said, conditions were very, very um, oppressive. And so the young Gavi, uh, very, very early, moved from the rural community of St. Anne's Bay um, and eventually within a period of two years into Kingston, that is the capital of Jamaica. Thank you so much for that, sir. Uh, now, uh, he went to school in Jamaica, of course. He has got to the United States now, as we will discuss later. Uh, do we remember um, any incident, anything that we can learn from his school days as a young child that is going to school? Slavery have just ended. Uh, of course, life is, uh, is precarious, like you just uh, described. But do we remember anything of him going to school, the primary school, maybe friends of him, maybe what he said then before he became, okay, he's still an ordinary young boy now. Well, Marcus was always uh, very sharp-witted and he was somebody who learned very, very quickly. And uh, Marcus was, was one who, who very, very early at that time, even going to primary school, would engage um, at his school in the back and forth on what were the, um, the, the very bad conditions in, in, in Jamaica at the time, where people weren't able to put bread on the table, even in the rural communities, where there was a little respite in the rural communities because, um, because um, people planted their own foodstuffs and so. But a lot of the, um, perhaps of the other trappings of life, they, they, they could not get, and it was a hand-to-mouth existence. And very, very often, Garvey and his, 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 his classmates all would get into little debates as far as this was concerned. All right. Thank you for that. That is always very important for us because we are looking at uh, the life of ordinary people who become extraordinary in the course of their life. And of course, we are looking at the life and legacy of this individual so that people can understand that, yes, as an ordinary person, you can grow to become extraordinary. They didn't jump down from the sky. They are, they are every other, like every other person. Uh, but of course, we can see that they did extraordinary. Now, uh, talking of that, uh, you did say that his father was a sort of um, a, a trade unionist. Uh, he was outspoken. Maybe that is uh, where... Marcus Garvey will uh, get some of the impute as he was growing up that he will later develop to, to become who he became. Uh, just like his father, is there any other person that we could uh, lay hand on in Jamaica who was sort of influencing the people, mobilizing the people uh, for sort of liberation uh, that we can say that Marcus Garvey could have learned from? Uh, yes, um, Marcus Garvey um, very early in his life, um, when he migrated um, into Kingston and became a printer's apprentice, one of the very first things that, 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 that I think we should note is that he became involved in the printer's union. And there in the printer's union, in the struggle of the working class people, a lot of the ideas of... of of the organized struggle of um, the oppressed black people, and to some extent the brown people as well, who were of mixed race, that is where he came into contact 
with some of with, with some of the very first ideas that um that uh, that would that would would solidify and crystallize um sometime sometime later and so one found that there was a particular organization um that organization was an organization called i think it was called um what was the organization called but it was an organization uh, a, a black nationalist organization that was putting out uh, um, an organ called Our Own. And the, the one, I don't recall the name now, but the guy who led that organization made a lasting impression on, on, on Marcus so that it helped solidify his, um, his philosophy of black nationalism. In fact, um, one of the organs, one of the, the, the issues of that organ, um, this particular gentleman wrote, it is only when uh, the, the people of the diaspora, the, um, the um, people of Africa and African descent throughout the Caribbean, the West Indies, that is, the um, Central America, the United States, Africa, throughout the world, it is only when they unite that they will be able to achieve true liberation for the oppressed black peoples throughout. And so um, this particular organization, this particular um, gentleman who led this organization, whose name really escapes me right now, but um, he had a very profound influence on Marcus Garvey and, uh, to help to form um, the, uh, Marcus Garvey's philosophy in the while Marcus was a very young man. Mm -hmm. All right, that is very important. Now, you revealed something interesting there, uh, which is um, the idea that Marcus Garvey, of course, will later uh, solidify and make popular, uh, which is the Africa Unite. Of course, we also will hear uh, of um, uh, Bob Marley, Africa Unite. Uh, so we can see now that the idea have been around somewhere in, in Jamaica at the time. So that led me to sort of uh, ponder over the question, how really was the identity of the African diaspora at the time? In like, how did they see themselves as a people, even though some of them could find themselves in Brazil, so could find themselves in Jamaica, so could find themselves in other islands, in the United States, in the United Kingdom? What was, was there anything that was united there as of the time that Marcos Gavin was still a, uh, like a growing young man? It was what united black people across the world was, in fact, racial oppression. Racial oppression, which was com compounded, of course, by economic and social oppression. We have to remember that um, we were talking about, just before Marcus was born, we are talking about the 19th century. Um, slavery had been ended in the, the British Caribbean in the period 1834 to 1838. But as I um, observed earlier on, um, social conditions had not really changed. In places like the United States and in Central America, slavery ended even later. But black people were fragmented across the area. But at the same time that they were fragmented, um, they were undergoing the same social oppression. So it took, um, it, 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 it took 
someone, it took a movement to develop, to connect the dots, if you like, connect um, these people across the diaspora. And of course, there were forerunners of, 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 of Gavi, um, you, you know, but, but these forerunners, like guys like um, Dr. Robert Love, um, guys like in the United States, like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, there were foreigners, but these foreigners of Gavi did not have the uh, did, uh, did did not have the the kind of link with the common people that would allow them to generalize that consciousness of the people across the diaspora. And so it was Marcus coming out of Jamaica, going through the Caribbean, going through Central America. And even North America, where um, uh, a branch of his UNIA union um, um, was, was formed in New York. Um, and of course, later on, his links with London and his links with Africans on the continent who, had, who, who, who caused the movement to, to, to attain real international proportion. So we will say the pan-Africanism of, of Marcus Gavi actually brought um, the movement together across the Caribbean, the Americas, and right into the continent of Africa. Yeah, that inf influence did reach Africa. And of course, it will lead to the liberation of, of Ghana, which was one of the form, um, one of the first, not, not the first actually, but one of the first to be independent. And the mark that, um, though uh, Kwame Krumah didn't really meet him because he, he wasn't there at the time, I think he, he had been deported. Uh, but the message, the, the, the signs that Marcos Gavi left, left in the United States will influence uh, uh, Kwame Krumah, who will then become the first president of Ghana. Yes, in Africa, the influence reached reach home. And we wish that more has reached home. Anyway, now, is there any incident that we can trace in the life of Marcos Gave that actually led him to become more participant as a, I don't know, a revolutionary, as the one who really want to change situation? Uh, okay, we know that now he's working there in, in Christine, in the, in, the, in the capital of, of Jamaica. Uh, was there anything there that happened or did he slowly from there grow up? Uh, was he discharged from the work? Did he have any quarrel with anybody? Is there anything, any incident that happened while he was still in Jamaica there, but now preparing maybe to even leave Jamaica to, to the outside world, to the, United, to the United States? What was very, very important at that time was the um, the breaking out of the breaking out of World War One, and in the breaking out during the breaking out of World War One, a number of Jamaicans and and Caribbean people in general were enlisted to fight um, for the British Empire. In this fight, these people were soldiers called on to fight for the British Empire, but they were they were discriminated against um, very, very badly um, on the battlefield. And they were very often asked to do menial jobs, very often asked to uh, 
you you know virtually serve the 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 white officers and and, and the white military um, establishment virtually as uh, not not much better than than the slaves um, were treated earlier on um, in in the 1830s and therefore these a lot of these people came back with a revulsion to Jamaica and to the Caribbean to Central America and these people found themselves um, in establishments, at workplaces, um, in situations of oppression as well, where they brought a certain consciousness with them, the consciousness of heightened deprivation. They brought that with them. With these people, Marcus Garvey did make uh, contact within, um, first within the trade union movement, within the political movement, as well as within his own UNIA, he made contact with these people, and the experiences of, of these people actually informed a lot of um, his ideas and his, and his praxis as far as the liberation of, 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 the, of the colonial people, especially the black people, is concerned. He would later um, travel in Central America, especially Costa Rica, um, Panama, um, Belize. He would travel into these places. He would later go on to the United States of America, where he would experience at first hand a lot of the, the deprivations, where he could see that it was not only in Jamaica. I must also mention that he traveled throughout the Caribbean as well, where he, um, where he was able to organize chapters or, or um or what you call, or, or, or branches of his organization, um, Grenada, Trinidad, right here in, in my little island of St. Lucia, um, Guyana as well, um, um, which is on the continent, but which we, uh, like Belize, also always take in as part of the Caribbean. And so um, this broadened, his, his experience, and in the broadening of this experience, this led to um, an activism that was more internationalist. All right. Now, uh, he went to the United States finally to stay. Uh, can we say that uh, he went to the United States for a mission specifically? Did he go there because um, uh, something pushed him there? Uh, did he, do we know what can be maybe the reason behind him going to the United States? I think um, Marcus at the time would have thought that the United States could have been a fulcrum from which he could have operated. At that time, we have to understand that he had also formed um, the BSL, the Black Star Line. Um, because one of the ideas he had was that um, entrepreneurship, business, black people being involved in, 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 in business as entrepreneurs would be able to, would be one of the critical factors that would lift um, the, the, the black diaspora, um, not only, um, throughout the Caribbean and the Americas, but throughout the world that would lift them out of oppression and, and poverty. And so he formed the Black Star Line, and he thought perhaps that 
the fulcrum, the, uh, the very epicenter of that um, would have been a place like the United States um, that was emerging at the time as a, a, a pillar of, 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 of capitalist economy. Uh, there, there were um, a lot of other people who would um, criticize him um, later for this, people like C.L.R. James, a very eminent um, Caribbean and international historian and an activist himself. Um, people like that would criticize him um, saying, or, or they, they, they were coming from the view that his, the tenor of, 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 of the struggle, of his struggle, of his approach was too capitalist oriented. All right. In a way, it is impossible for a leader not to face criticism because everybody is not the same. We are not seeing it from the same point of view. All right. That is that is also fair enough. Um, now, you made mention of the Black Star um, and the organization. Even before I ask you the question related to him eventually coming to the United States. So one thing I would like you to clarify for me there is, did it form the organization before getting to the United States, or did it form the organization after he has got it to the United States? Can you clarify that, please? This, this I am not very clear on, but what was uh, what what was pivotal um, in his mind was that um, first of all, the Black Star Line was um, was was what was going to be. Uh, um, a tool through which the black diaspora, through which the black diaspora um, um, could go back um, um, to their origins in Africa. That was one thing. And so it was, it was an idea he had um, from the onset in Jamaica. But, but what, what happened, I think, too, was that he thought that, that in the United States, um, he uh, that organization could have mushroomed since he was looking to uh, a lot of the, the the emerging black business people to support that venture, and a lot of these people were in the United States, as you know, um, in the period um, just after slavery, um, a number of, 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 of black communities prospered in the United States before they were suppressed. And so Gavi looked on, 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 on these communities as, as communities from which he could have drawn entrepreneurial support. Thank you for the clarification. Um, now, at what point can we say Gavi uh, actually arrived at, as a leader in the community. I know that he has been doing this all along from maybe see his father, uh, uh, from what the father was doing in the community. And then of course, uh, he will grow his influence beginning from Jamaica. Uh, but now in the United States, that is where we actually get to hear of him more. At what point uh, in the line can we say Gave has become the leader in the United States uh, that um, people can look up to for salvation, for direction, for what is the name, what is the next call on what to do? Okay, I think we um here we have to note that Gavi, in fact, in 1928, 
um, recognizing the importance of the political struggle, not just of the trade union struggle, but the political struggle for democratization, um, which would eventually, eventually lead to, to, to reforms and to independence. He saw that um, quite early. And in 1928, he, he formed what we call the People's Political Party in Jamaica. So quite early in Jamaica, um, we saw the formation of um, political a political party by Garvey himself. We also saw other political parties and organizations, for example, a political party in Barbados. The very first political party in the island of Barbados was formed um, under the influence of Garveyism. So a number of the political organizations that were being formed across the Caribbean um, drew their inspiration from the direct involvement of, of Garveyism, very direct involvement. So we saw that by that time, Garvey was already emerging as emerging as a figure that was binding the, the, um, the black diaspora. Um, there were conferences, for example, in London. And at these conferences, Garvey was now becoming recognized. As I say, he was going beyond what was looked upon as the elitism of leaders prior to him who were well-meaning, who were black, but who were but who were removed um, from, uh, from, from the mass of the people. And it was, it was Gavi's connection and involvement and the immersion with, with, with the mass of black people, not only in Jamaica and um, with, the, with, with his political party and with his involvement in, 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 in trade unions, um, not only in other parts of the Caribbean, but in Central America. I want to say too, that at, at that time, Garvey also dabbled in a, a bit of journalism because one would realize that um, to spread the ideas, there was a need, newspapers at the time and, new, and magazines were a big thing. And a lot of black people um, now coming into, now um, coming into having a certain um, amount of education, being able to read and write were, voraciously lapping up some of the ideas of Marcus, of Marcus Garvey, not only in Jamaica, but even in places like, 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 like Belize and, and Panama. And so, and of course, um, he would go on to, as, um, to the United States as well. So it was in, in that period, by that time, Garvey was already or had already emerged as a formidable force. Thank you so much for that, sir. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the conversation. This is very important. Uh, it's an honor to learn about a great individual uh, like us, my, uh, Marcus Garvey. And of course, it's an honor to talk to you too, who is um, helping us to understand him. Uh, so I really am honored to talk to you. Um, so Marcus Garvey, at the time, growing up from uh, Jamaica, at a point managed to organize the entire um, diaspora because now you may mention of uh, the united states 
you may mention also of going to as far as um, uh, the United Kingdom organizing a conference. If I, uh, one of the documentary that I did about Pan-Africanism, uh, one of the persons that I interviewed here, right in the country where I am in Italy, did say that that conference that was held in London uh, was actually the very first time that the term Pan-Africanism uh, was used or something like that. Anyway, I'm not even there to contest that or to affirm it or whatever. But what I'm saying is that all Africans diaspora, people of African descent anywhere in the world, have a lot of respect for this individual. Now, the question is, what did Marcos Gave actually mean by the term Pan-Africanism? As far as one can gather, Pan-Africanism for Marcos Gave was the uniting of people of African descent throughout the world. Again, he felt that that was the, the condition under which the liberation of, of people of African descent all over the world would be achieved. He, he felt that you could not achieve that just by, in Jamaica alone, in the Caribbean alone, in Central America, no. It had to be the engagement of the entire um, diaspora and as well as people on the African continent. I also want to point out that he never left out the people of mixed race, which um, um, were described um, as the coloreds. Um, he, um, he, he, as people also of African descent, um, he felt that these people should also be, and a number of them were, as uh, as a matter of fact, in, involved. Um, for example, in, 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 in Trinidad, you will find people like Rienzi and so on, who was of mixed race. People like that, um, uh, Cipriani, who was of mixed race. These people um, welcomed Marcus Gavi. On the other hand, um, a number of people would later on feel that um, Marcus Garvey needed to go beyond just Pan-Africanism, but needed to go beyond a broader um, nationalism, which would, which would bring in and form alliances with, with, with working class people um, throughout the world, regardless of, of, of their race, in order to promote um, the ideas of liberation. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I am sort of curious. Uh, okay. When we say Pan-Africanism, and of course, everything is, is usually um, attached to ideology. Um, now, what was the concrete agenda to put it into practice? Because a lot of people do not understand ideology. They understand it when it is brought to their level. Of course, Marcos Gavit is a very high-class individual. And the academia, when they discuss uh, Pan-Africanism, they usually use terms of the academia, terminologies and languages that they can understand perfectly. And that I understand. But to the average people, to the ordinary people, how was the idea of Pan-Africanism expected to be translated for them so that they too can understand it instead of maybe remaining within the intellectual cycle. The, the ideas of Pan-Africanism um, 
had to be translated into concrete benefits on the ground for these people in terms, for example, of the social conditions in which they lived, in terms of their wages, in terms of their opportunities for education. We will remember that these people were deprived. These people, um, and, and that was accentuated in conditions of, of the, the, the first, the depression and the first world war. So these people saw this pan-Africanism not in a very ideological sense, as, as, as you say. They, they understood that, they, yes, there were ideas, but they had to see it transformed in their very lives, in their various communities, in the Caribbean, in the United States, and, and in the diaspora generally. So this is how these people um, the, the, the broad mass of the people would have seen it. And this is what the broad mass of the people expected. Um, what is, um, I think we should note here too, that um, by the 1930s, especially in the Caribbean, or before I go to that, I would say that in this period that we're talking about, the late 20s, um, going into the 1930s. In this period we were talking about, there was also another stream of Pan-Africanism or Black nationalism that was emerging in the ideas of negritude, um, as they would say in French, negritude. Um, it, it came out of, of um, people like Aimé Césaire. Now, Aimé Césaire, um, put, it, put, uh, put it like this, Aimé Césaire was our neighbor. Um, Martinique is just north of St. Lucia. Um, this is where Aimé Césaire was born. Um, St. Lucia shares with Martinique um, the, should we call it, the, the infamy of being um, colonized by the French. So we were colonized by both the French and the British. Because of that, we speak a French-based Creole. And so... Um, you, you find that the ideas of negritude were also ideas that were taking root. Um, you, you had um, people like Leopold Senghor and, um, and in Africa, and he and Aimé Césaire um, were, made that link, and they also made link with, with intellectuals in the United States. But at that level, it was still very, very ideological and intellectual. And so um, perhaps quite a number of our, uh, of our people in the Caribbean, and I'm, now I'm speaking not just of the British Caribbean, but I'm speaking also of other parts of the Caribbean, like, like that part of the Caribbean colonized by the French, only begun to understand when it was brought um, or begun to understand it more clearly when it resonated with their, with their actual lives and with their actual involvement um, to get freedoms, political freedoms as well. Because here, I want to point out that up to then in the Caribbean, we had a system of what we call crown colony government. And in that crown colony government, the broad mass of the people, especially the black people, the broad mass did not have political power. 
Um, you had a certain amount of political authority in the hands of the planter merchant class, who were predominantly what they call colored, of mixed race, and also um, they, they were also white. But the, for participation in that, um, that government, the franchise was based on property. The majority of black people did not have the property qualifications. Of course, in places like Jamaica and even in St. Lucia, you would find that even in the days of slavery, black people had run away and, and that they had cultivated land in the hills. But this land was not, this property was not recognized by, by the colonial, by the colonial um, government sitting in either England or France. And so they did not have these qualifications, um, these, the, the, the qualifications that would allow them to participate. It was only with the, with the, um, with the explosion, the rebellion of the 1930s that you find that um, people would eventually, the broad mass of the people would be, would, in, in the Caribbean that is, would eventually be brought into the wider struggle for national liberation, which was also unfolding in Africa and in the United States as well, but which was stymied quite a bit in the United States. It was only at, at then that you find that um, our black people were coming into their own. However, at, it was also at that time that Marcus Garvey's uh, organizations um, began to wane. So that at that time you find that um, as an organized force, he did not have, um, he started his, his um, influence as an organized force started to diminish. But, but at the very same time, the, the seeds and the ideas um, that, that, that he sowed started to germinate in the, in, um, in, in, the labor, in the liberation movements, in the labor movements throughout the Caribbean. Thank you so much for that. Uh, now, the idea that Michael Garvey was um, propagating and the idea that was coming from negritude, uh, coming from the, the branch of, Fran of French uh, Africans now, what was the major difference? And was there at a point the, the desire or the intention to merge the two together for a common purpose? Yes. Uh, there was that intention to mesh together because Gavi and 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 even um, people like Senghor and 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 um, Aimé Césaire saw the streams merging because whereas um, in the very early um, emergence of, of of negritude it was a very intellectual movement. Um, people, especially like Césaire, saw the need for it to make connection with the broad mass of the working people. And that is why we found, for example, Césaire um, um, going back to, um, to his native Martinique and becoming um, immersed and involved in the political movement in Martinique. And um, it was 
Um, it was in this period, just before going, in fact, before he went back to Martinique, that um, we would find that he, he would develop a lot of the ideas which would eventually lead to his immersion in the politics of Martinique, in the politics of Martinique and the Caribbean. And I'm sure you must have heard or, or perhaps you have read his, um, um, his seminal um, poem because um, he was a great poet as well. His seminal um, poem, The Cahier, um, in which he, um, he described, um, well, he was talking about a return to his native land and his engagement in his nat native land at that um, political anti-colonial level. That's interesting. So at least uh, at a point there was this uh, desire to merge the two together and to have a common purpose. And that should be natural because if they are both uh, fighting for the interests of the African people or the people of African descent, uh, that interest must sort of become uh, the same for, for both now. Otherwise, we'll go to look for another way to, to interpret it. All right. Now, uh, what about Africa? At the time that Marcos Gave was in, in his prime, okay, I understand that the, uh, the Atlantic, um, the Black Star Line uh, was designed also to take uh, people of the diaspora back home and, and a lot of things that have happened to them. But I want you to explain the message to me even before then that how was the message of Marcos Gave received in Africa? At the time in Africa, how was the African people getting the message? What were they saying? What were, how were they reacting to the message? The reaction of African people to, to that message at different levels were different. The large mass of African people at that time, engaged as they were in the anti-colonial struggles with the British and the French and the Belgians, etc., etc., the broad mass of, 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 of the African people were quite unaware at the time of, of even the desire for the African diaspora to make that link with Africa. At the level of, of the, the elite, however, there was, that desire, um, there was that knowledge. And at the level of the elite, there were mixed reactions as far as that, uh, as that is concerned. Now, as I have pointed out, Senghor was one of those, was one of those who had a fair understanding of what um, people like Gavi would be trying to achieve, what people like, um, like earlier on, like W.E.B. Du Bois in the United States were trying to achieve, and they were open to the they were open to the ideas. They were open to the ideas at several levels: at the political level, at the at the cultural level, and the cultural level is very important, and. And um, a number of, of people on the African continent understood that it was much later, much later, I think in the in the fifties. But it comes out of that movement. It was much later in the fifties that people like like Amilcar Cabral would 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 point out 
that it was important for the liberation of black people to return to the source, return to the source of culture, re return to, um, to the source of the understanding of oneself as a people, not as a, a, a people fractured across the world, but as a people united by what um, he saw as a common destiny. It, um, so, so that there were um, differing, differing um, responses to it. However, as the national liberation movement um, spread throughout Africa, and I might as well add Asia as well, because um, the national liberation movement was now taking, um, taking root, um, responding to, to colo um, colonialism worldwide as it took root, um, there was a larger understanding of the mass of the people um, that the common struggles of all our peoples on the, on, on the different continents and in the, uh, in the diaspora was very, very important and was critical to the freedom of all. However, at the very same time that we were coming to that kind of understanding, there were all efforts to, um, to divide us. And so along the lines of, 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 of what was going on with the French and what was going on with the British, they, they sought to divide people along these lines. But there were people and there were movements that transcended um, um, that. And I'm sure you, your, your mind would go back to, to Franz Fanon. Who, who was also from Martinique, and in fact, who was born in, in Dominica, one of the other islands, um, who, um, but then um, um, grew up in, in, in Martinique. And it was, it, it was Franz Fanon who later, um, after going to study um, um, in, in, in France, found himself fighting in the national liberation movement in Algeria. And so, and so not even, I mean, it's a common practice. They, they like to um, divide people into sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and North Africa and, and, and East Africa and make us believe that, our, 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 that we are different people and our destinies are not the same. Even, even up to now, we, we see that certain people, even in, 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 in places like Tunisia, would have bought into that kind of division. But, as I say, at different levels in the society, the African people on the continent were becoming very receptive and they understood that our destiny lay, lay together. Thank you so much for that. Uh, in the course of the interview that, I, that I've done here, at some, at some point, I understood that uh, at the time, the publication of Marcos Garvey were getting to Africa. But anyway, what kind of Africa are we even talking about so that we can understand? At the time, a lot of countries in Africa were not even free. I don't know how many of them were even free. It was still a period of colonialism. Every, all of them, maybe, nearly all of them were under the control of the European. So what kind of engagement are we even supposed to have anyway? So uh, for the colonial government to see you with the copies of the publication okay. of Marcos Garvey, was a big trouble. Someone said many. It was almost like an execution. Yes. All right. So, and, yeah, yeah. Please go. Yes. 
And this was considered to be seditious literature. So you were not supposed to have it. I think you pointed out Marcus Garvey ended up being deported, you know, and he was not only deported um, from, I think it was Ghana. He, he, he was not only deported from there, he was deported from the United States. He was arrested twice in the United States. And so the, the ideas that Marcus Garvey disseminated, the articles that he wrote as a very accomplished journalist, these ideas were taboo. These ideas had to be suppressed. And as you have well pointed out, that period of, of the, the germination and the development of the national liberation movement in Africa, and for that matter, um, throughout the colonial world, Britain and France and the colonial powers in general saw it as very, very dangerous and subversive, and so it had to be suppressed. And um, this was one of uh, um, this was one of the things that that also led to the undoing of of um, Garveyism as an organized force, because they went after the leadership, they went after the head, they went after uh, after Garvey. Um, it was they were able to successfully break um, or the organized um, Garveyite movement eventually because there were also a number of weaknesses within the movement, and that is because, as as some historians have pointed out that although these were movements that were aimed at, at liberation and freedom, they also had elements of, also had elements of authoritarianism um, within these organizations, which allowed for splits within the organizations, which were then exploited by the colonial people and by the United um, the United States as well. The United States um, usually does not like to see itself as a colonial power, but what what happened in the United States was the colonization of black people within the borders of the United States. So that all of these um, uh, all of our people, whether it was in the United States, in Africa, in the United Kingdom, in the Caribbean. Um, Central America, our people were under the yoke of colonialism and um, some of the weaknesses of our organizations were, um, were used, but that would end up in a big conflagration sorry, in the Caribbean in the 1930s. Thank you so much for that. Uh, ideas are powerful. I think that is one of the reasons uh, Michael's Garvey story should have been flying all across Africa. And uh, of course, uh, I was saying before that at the time Africa was not free. I don't even know if I can be confident to say in 2023 that Africa is free. It is difficult to even say today. But anyway, um, so there were always, and there are always, and there will always be some influential individual in every society, irrespective of any circumstances. Can we point, or oh, you did make mention of uh, Franz Fanon before. Uh, who did um, uh, support the idea of Marcos Garvey, uh, the Garveyism. But are there some 
other persons that we could see right in Africa, born in Africa, grew up in Africa, who saw the situation, what they were going through. And because of what they heard of Gavi, read about him, actually extend the hand of fellowship and try to build a common interest together so that they can find a common objective. Somebody right from Africa going out to, to reach out to their brothers in the diaspora in this line. Okay. Um, there is not an, um, there are not names that I can put a finger on at the time, at this time. Um, as I pointed out, I know the, um, there were a number of, uh, um, uh, of, of people who received Marcus Garvey's ideas very well, and they would have reached out to him, and they would, and they would have um, formed that bond with him. I cannot put my finger on, 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 on names right now. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um... And I, I, I like to ask a question uh, about him personally. Now, he has made this move. Even among the Europeans, there are only few people that you can actually point out to as a real leader that is able to organize the people as complex as the African diaspora. So, in every respect, Michael Gavi was a really giant among men. Now, he talked about returning to Africa. I think that was how Liberia was actually formed at the people that were returned to, to Africa. That was how that piece of land was formed. Um, but of him personally, did he ever express the intention of going to Africa? Did he want to go to Africa and he didn't succeed? What was his intention in this line, either to go and visit or to go and stay? Okay. Um, Marcus Garvey, while his um, his intentions or his philosophy was was quite clear, and while Marcus Garvey preached the idea through the to through the Black Star Line, the BSL, of going back to Africa, I am I, I am not sure where whether Marcus Garvey himself intended to relocate. Um, personally in Africa. I think, however, that he felt that black people in the diaspora outside of Africa should have the option of making that return and that it was a very desirable thing. And so from that standpoint, I think his movement was in fact quite a genuine movement. Now, even here in the Caribbean, um, there, there was a pushback. Um, there was a pushback among certain people um, from that. People felt that, look, I am already here in the Caribbean. I'm going to stay here and make my life in the Caribbean. But to a number of people, um, other people, they accepted it while they, um, uh, um, they uh, accepted it philosophically they saw themselves as, okay, whoever wants to do it um, can do it. I will, um, I will leave my option, options open as to whether I move there or not. Now, I must talk here of the, the, um, the movement called Rasta Parai. These, um, the movement of Rasta, and I'm sure you would have heard 
um, you, 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 you would be familiar with that. That movement is the movement in more recent times that have um, sought to continue to propagate these ideas. Although some streams of that, uh, that movement um, propagated in a more modified form. Um, a lot of times because um, people were being fed the idea, look, you're going back to um, you're going back to Africa, Africa is divided, the majority of people on the African uh, continent would not even want you to come back there, etc., etc. So people have had mixed feelings about it. But whereas people have had mixed feelings about it, there has always been a core of people who have looked to the idea of going back to Africa. But whether Marcus himself um, would have eventually um, settled in Africa is not is not clear to me. All right, thank you for that. That is, uh, yeah, that, that was important to be to be clarified. Um, of course, there are different dimensions to that question and um, and to the idea around it. Uh, because even for us, because we are a generation that we were really transported here by force, like me. I came here to Italy in 2004, and I'm still here, not because the Italian government forced me to be here. They did not invite me. I came on my own. If I want to return to Nigeria today, I can do that. Of but course. I'm still here. That is my choice. And of course, sometimes we can use different ideas to justify why we remain where we are, why we don't want to return home. Um, anyway, it is a complex situation. It is serious. Uh, because the question of back to Africa will always come to hurt us until we address it. No? All right. That might be a discussion for another day because it is important for us to look into whether um, in, as a group. Um, in fact, if, 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 if I may yeah. just interject Please. here for a while, you would be aware of the, the reparations movement. And one of the demands of, of certain parts of the reparations movement in the Caribbean is that part of it should be that one should have the option of going back to Africa if um, they so choose. Um, it is not compulsory that as an African in the diaspora, you must return home. That is not compulsory. It's not even... Um, Anyway, let me put it like this before I offend people. Uh, the point is that this world, this whole world belongs to all of us as human beings. We are supposed to live wherever we choose to, as long as we are not destroying that piece of this, destroy the peace of the people that we found there. So that includes also the people of African descent. If you like to live in the United States, and that is where you find your peace, you should be free to do that. If you want to live in Germany or France or in Canada, you should be free to do it. It is your choice. That you should return to Africa is also a question of choice. Nobody is going to force that on you. But I think where it will become a little bit interesting is that sometimes people over-romanticize the idea that uh, okay, we are returning to Africa, all of us, tomorrow. Because nobody, there is no really bridge that is stopping you from going to Africa if you want to go to Africa. Okay, look at the European, for example. I'm not saying the European is the best, mm -hmm. is the better model, but I'm just saying, look at it, because 
Europe and Africa are separated by only a small stretch of water. Irrespective of, yeah, irrespective of what many Europeans might believe that they are seeing Africa for the first time, I usually tell them, hey, it is not true. It's just because you don't know. You and me are neighbors. We have been here divide, uh, living between this water for thousands of years. You know me. I know you. So don't pretend you don't know me. All right. Have I said that? The country Australia was transformed into what it is today by immigrants that came from Europe. You can't simply wake up and tell them, hey, all of you should return home. It is the, if they want to, they can return to or England or some other part of the Europe where they come from. I remember, for example, the ex-president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, was making a lot of comment relating in this line that, okay, uh, you should return to where you come from, uh, whether you are an immigrant or something like that. But the point was this one. Nobody actually is, is the owner of the United States except the indigenous people of the United States. The piece of land I'm talking about. Every other person is an immigrant. In fact, that is how we came to different parts of the world. Whether you, you are a Chinese, you are an Indian, all of us at one time were only living in Africa. Only in Africa we were living. The fact that you say you are a European, another person call you call him an immigrant, it just simply and specifically means that you arrived first. I arrived later. It doesn't mean you came from sky or you came from under the ground. All of us are coming from the same place. We are the same people. Of course, metamorphosed based on the forces of nature, based on what has happened to you. Anyway, I don't want to overdrag that. What <laughs> I... <laughs> no, no, but, uh, but, I think, but I think that is a very interesting point and a very salient point that you're making. Because if you're going to say, well, all Africans, and, and what are Africans? Um, are you going to say that people of a particular phenotype or, or whatever are Africans? I, I mean, you have all ethnicities right across Africa, from south to north, east to west. But are you going to say all Africans remain in Africa, all Europeans remain in Europe, all, uh, you know, all Asians remain in Asia? That, um, that kind of, what would, that kind of, apartheid that's what it is that kind of apartheid is ridiculous the the earth belongs to all of us as humanity and you cannot banish people as you have correctly pointed out um to living um in, in one part of the world or saying go back to here or go back to there because as you have pointed out australia um uh, the europeans have spread everywhere right and so um they, they, they are in Africa, they, they are in Asia, they, um, they are in Australia, they are in North America. So why should other people be required to just be fenced in or all, or all forced to return um, to um, a, a particular geographic area and other people be kept out because... This is not your land. But when you look, the, uh, a lot of times the people who are saying, oh, go back to this place or go back to that place, go back to Africa, go back to India, go back to Asia. These people do not, in fact, they, as you have pointed out, they are immigrants. They do not, um, on, 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 what, on what factual basis 
are they asking people um, to go back to this place or to that place? Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. That is very important. And it's absolutely important for people of the African descent and diaspora to understand that concept that you are free to live anywhere you choose to. As long as you are not an immigrant, you do not disturb the peace of anybody. If you, if you want to live in Vatican, go there and live. You and have interestingly, right. And interestingly, on that point too, and it's very, very good that you have developed that point, because on that point too, um, whereas back to Africa is something that is commendable, on that point too, the, the, the point that we have options, um, there are a lot of, uh, of people who, because they hold the concept that um, going back to the African continent is the ideal thing, they look upon those who choose to reside or to live um, or, or to um, have their lives elsewhere they look upon um, th those those people as as if you 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 are a traitor, as if you have sold out. <laughs> anyway, you see that is that is why I was saying that this particular idea, the back to Africa, is an interesting conversation that we need to have. All right, now let me give you an instant. Then we'll come to Marcus Gave just now. All right, I come from south of Nigeria. Now, in south of Nigeria, the state that is called Bid uh, Edo State, that is where I'm coming from. Inside Edo State is a, uh, it's a small city, uh, we'll call it now, Uromi. That is where I'm coming from. Now, Uromi, you go there, you enter my village. My village is Amedokia. Now, this is the story I want to uh, uh, say. Now, we have done a story, a, a kind of investigation to know where are the people from my village coming from? Okay, then we find out that the people of my village, which are called Amedokia, of course, a part of Amedokia, not the whole of it, a part of it came from another place, which is not Urumi, because you need to get to Urumi before you can get to my village. It came from another town, another small city that is called Ewohimi. That is where we are coming from. Of course, I'm not going to drag that more, because if I drag it more, we understand that the people of Ewohimi are coming from another place, which is the people of Benin. That is where all the family of people of Esam are coming from. And this is the story I want to make. If we, because we are not the original people of Uromi or the mm -hmm. Amedokia, if the original people tells us, hey, you are going to leave this land. If that is an idea that was shared by one of the persons that I interviewed here, you are going to return to where you came from. Now, by the time we return to where we came from, we meet that other people are there. Then we tell those people, you are going to return to where you came from. This world is going to be in confusion. So it's never going to happen. Not now, not in one million years' time. Let, 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 me, let me share something with you. Please. You, you will notice my name is Goddard. George Goddard. Yeah. Goddard is a British name. Now, I carry that name because my grandfather is of European origin. My father's father. My father is of mixed race, right? A black St. Lucian woman and a white Barbadian. That white Barbadian has his origins in Britain. My father did a DNA and my father's 
DNA shows that roughly um, a very large part on his mother's side is Nigerian and half of it is from Britain, right? And then you have little bits and pieces from North Africa and this place and that place and the other place. So as a human being, as a human being, so obviously I have not, I have not done such a DNA, but, um, but obviously um, if these are the roots of my father's, then obviously it is replicated to some degree in, my, in, in myself as well. So how then, how then, if you now have to, to go back to where you're from, which bits and pieces of you are going to go back to here, to there, to everywhere? And as you say, in Africa as well, because um, if you trace um, your um, one traces um, his DNA to, um, to, to the Igbo people or to, to the Fulani or to this or to that, you will go on tracing over and over again until where are you going to? <laughs> because populations have moved, uh, have migrated for thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. You see, it, it is important, this conversation. We, we need to awaken it. By the way, because I, I, I want to return to Gavi, otherwise, I have all that it would have asked there. Uh, yes, but, yes. <laughs> but it's fine. All right, now let's come to the great man, Marcus Gavi. Now, how do you examine his whole type of leadership? Because, again, I repeat, he's one kind of a person. He was able to do what many people put together couldn't do. Because in your story, the way you uh, explain it, that there were other people before him who couldn't manage to organize the people the way that he did. He is a kind of a person. So how do you explain this whole type of leadership? Marcus was a charismatic leader. Marcus was a mobilizer. Marcus had the ability to make that connection um, between ideology and practice on the ground. And that is what differentiated him from the people who went um, before him. That was what allowed him to um, form organizations like UNIA, to form organizations like um, the, the Black Star Line, to go throughout the length and breadth of the Caribbean and to, to infuse our people with the idea that we can rise up and better our conditions socially and economically, that we can rise up and free ourselves and liberate ourselves. And what is very interesting he was not only in his element in the Caribbean, he was, also, he was also able to find his way on the Central American continent where things would have been a bit different in terms of, um, in, in, in terms of the, 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 um, the influence of, of, of Spanish culture because here in the Caribbean, um, he would have moved primarily um, in countries where you had the influence of, of British culture, and in some cases, French culture like St. Lucia, right? But in, in Central America, where you had the influence of Spanish culture, in the United States, where you had the inf 
influence of a broad range of cultures. So Marcus was able to um, was able to translate and to make that connectivity among people, and that is where he differentiated himself from the people who were, for want of a better word, more cerebral, more ideological. Now, that is not to say that Marcus was not ideological. He was ideological because you need a, a clear ideology to underpin where you're going. But he was able to make that connection between the ideology and the praxis. All right. When I think of Marcus Garvey, there is something that always strikes me. Of course, I've read the, the book, the, the, the biography, I think that was uh, put together by the wife, uh, Amy Garvey. Uh, that was really eye-opening. It was powerful. Now, the term, the word that I really like to pick out is organization. Uh, this, is, this is it. Everything is already in this world. Everything that we want is already in this world. Okay, now, we are talking, we pick up a book. The book is nothing more than A, B, C, D, until the end of the alphabet, which is uh, Z. Now, somebody have organized it. You put A, instead of B, you go and add another word to another word. You organize it. You basically reorganize it. You did not invent the alphabet. The alphabet were already there. Now, what does it mean? In Africa, for example, Africa is the most blessed piece of land anywhere in the world. Everything you need is there. But there is something that is missing, the organization. For this reason, the people of Africa are condemned to suffering for eternity until one day they know how to organize themselves. Organization. What do you want to say? about the strategy of Marcos Garvey to organize the people. Because like you said, he went across borders, across languages, even across religion, I want to believe. What is his strategy? What can we learn from his organizational strategy? Let me. His organizational strategy was that there was a common bond and he accentuated that common bond among our people. And that common bond was, one, the conditions of deprivation and the desire for people to rise above these conditions, the desire of people to, to be free, the desire of, 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 uh, of people all over the, the diaspora to live as human beings and he was able to he was able to make that bridge that gap between what perhaps the people who were only intellectual understood from a very cerebral standpoint um, to practice on the ground to showing people that we can, can better our conditions of living if we took this action, that action, or the other action. And I think that was what, and, and of course, one of the examples was the Black Star Line, 
um, where markets showed that we could organize. As I say, um, it is quite true that he was criticized, not necessarily for organizing the Black Star Line, but they felt that he put too much into um, what was felt to be simply a capitalist approach to enterprise and putting too much store on that as a way out of liberation, or out of, sorry, out of poverty and, and out of oppression. However, it does not dim the fact that he had these tools of organization. Now, again, I go back to, I go back to, um, to the position where, uh, um, where it is understood that at some point, the organization that um, Marcus built, the several branches of the organization that Marcus built, um, did not hold together because of changing conditions. Not because people did not understand um, the need to um, to go on to um, to to liberate themselves because the the matter of liberation you said earlier on that the question of liberation the question of freedom the question of independence um, you 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 still not free and that is quite true it is still a work in progress and and um, because um, Marcus Garvey and perhaps those around him um, did not have the ability at the time to uh, um, to transcend what had what um, the organization, what the UNIA had become, um, and perhaps not just the UNIA, but to make the necessary links um, with the larger struggle that was developing. I mean, in the Caribbean and the other parts of the world, his organization, um, his organization as an organization waned. However, that does not take um, from um, from it the fact that that his ideas continue to be a seminal force in the liberation movement. How did that? How did they manage to get the resources to be able to set up the Black Star Line? And because those are gigantic projects. Do you know that 2023, there is no shipping airline that is owned by an African or an African descent? If you know anyone, you can help me understand it. How did they do it that time? And we cannot do it today. Ma Marcus, Marcus um, depended primarily on the on the commitment, on the commitment of a number of people in the diaspora, in the Caribbean, in the United States, black folk. But even then, um, one must record that he became very, very um, disappointed in them when he felt that they were not, um, um, they were not continuing to 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 support the organization at an entrepreneurial level in the way that he thought that that they should, but a lot of that happened because of divisions that were sown in the movement, divisions which um, had to a very very great extent um, its 
its its its origins in in the power of the white supremacist state, um, the state of the United States. Now, uh, if people want to be free inside the United States, now it will it will be very stupid of the American government if they don't want if they don't intend to destroy it. <laughs> but to people say, I build a house. I would never have somebody try to take it from me. It's not even a strategy. That is not a plan. The plan must be that, ah, tomorrow people are coming to take this house from me. So you must be on guard. Did the organization do everything it needed to do to safeguard itself from external forces? Because not to think that other forces are coming to destroy the organization would be an error. Help me with that. No, no, it, it, it didn't. And, 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 and I think that one of um, the ways it could have um, insulated um, itself effectively against this was um, a more democratic involvement um, of, um, of the masses of the people within the various branches of the organization. Unfortunately, um, Gavi's um, organization, like so many of our other organizations, even within the trade union movement and the political parties in the Caribbean and, and I dare say um, in Africa as well, and in, 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 in other parts of the diaspora, the leadership became um, too authoritarian. And not that they had any evil or mal intent, but authoritarianism meant that at some point, you, to use a British term, you could not see the wood for the trees. And therefore, a lot of what was developing was obscured. And before you know it, right, you fell victim to when you thought that, that you were holding the organization together, you fell victim to, um, to, to the very schisms that, that occurred because of the fact that one was trying to be a bit too authoritarianism. Sorry, too author authoritarian. Thank you for that. All right. Um, the game. I like the way uh, one person, one historian that I interviewed here, uh, described the situation between African and African diaspora and the European. For uh, the European and the Western system, they are in a game. And we must know that it is a game. I am interested in how do we checkmate ourselves and isolate the system so that we can be able to defend ourselves? Not in the luck that we will not be attacked. We can never think that we cannot be attacked. We must be attacked. In fact, there are people planning to attack us right now. But how do we make sure that we can defend ourselves? By defense, I mean, the United States have a system of defense for itself. That is just one country. The whole of the European country have a system of defense for themselves, for their common interest. As long as we cannot defend ourselves, we are not able to decide what kind of contract happened between us and other people. 
How are we even able to do that? So that I'm not saying that we'll not be traitors. There will always be traitors because we are dealing with human beings and human beings are complex. What if they hold your child, for example, and they say, reveal it? What if they kill your mother, for example? We were just talking. It's no longer just talking. Things will always happen, but how can we defend ourselves so that we can stand? That is just a question. I know it's complex. Yeah, it, it is a complex question. And here it leads me to um, the idea of the solidarity, the coming together, the interaction, the interchange of what is we we call the global south. Uh, we used to call it the third world. Um, and now the more the um, the more extant terminology is the global south. How does the global south ensure that they come together? not just the African continent, but the wider concept of the global South in the world. How do we come together and, and defend ourselves and advance our interests? What is interesting is that we don't just have the United States or, or um, on its own or Europe on its own or, you know, the, the EU and you have you have the United States, you have the EU, and and the their tentacles are extend um, extended into Australia and and um, New Zealand and part and, and Japan is part of the whole system, and their project has been over the years to dominate the financial systems of the world, dominate the finance of the world, dominate the trade of the world through the WTO, whose rules they write for us. And at the same time, um, if things go really wrong, they have the military of power of, of NATO. And so the United States the European Union, and by extension, Australia and Canada and, and Japan, they have, um, and, and more and more they are drawing in e, um, um, Eastern Europe, and they have these different um, tools they use. So at that level, um, we have to understand that what we're dealing with, what I mean, we can be crippled by the, just by the control of the financial system. Here in the Caribbean, we have um, our banks, our small banks, have have been running the the, the risk of being of of of, of, of sanctions um, by um, by the OECD countries, by these larger countries, because um, if they feel that we are not in compliance with this or that, you know? And so this is the stranglehold they have over us. So it now means that we of the global South have to file, find these tools, especially in terms of trade and production and, um, and, and finance matters. We have to, we have to find that. Um, we have to find our way through 
the maze of these things, but I do not think it is something that is impossible. Yes, again, you got to go back to the organization. Because Marcos Gave, he was born at a time that, okay, we could say that there were other people that he could learn from, but there was no really very solid organization that had been set up. No, people are just free from slavery. But so the, the, the people's mind are so messed up that some people will even prefer to remain there uh, in the situation that they were. Because now you are free, okay, but you are free. What are the instruments that you have to be able to compete in the world? So it was a really complicated situation, but in that situation, he managed to rise up and organize what he organized. I think that is extraordinary. So comparing that to the situation that we have today, I think we have more chances of being able to organize ourselves. So yes, I believe you, it's possible. But how do we do it? This is, this is something that is going to take... Um, not just a lot of thought, a, a, a lot of interaction. And as I say, it is going to take a certain amount of internationalism um, because we have to reach across borders, especially, especially those of us um, who we now describe as those of us in the global south. We have to reach across borders, across cultures, across race. We have to reach across that and, and, and build something from the ground up because the edifice that we face is a very complex edifice. That edifice sees us as, as an entity to be suppressed, an entity um, from which to extract wealth, and any movement in the direction of claiming or reclaiming our wealth, they look at this as a threat to their further accumulation of wealth. So our heads would, to use a colloquial term, our heads would definitely have to be put together, but we have to reach across, across the boundaries of the nation state. We have to reach across um, the boundaries of, of the several countries and, and geographical areas um, throughout which we have been flung. We have to reach even out across just the, um, the, the confines of just Africa. We have, it has to be, um, we have to reach across the the, the question of the oppressed peoples, even of other races. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Now, looking at the challenges, what would you say uh, was the challenges that Michael Gavin would have had in his time? So that he, we see that he managed to overcome many of them. Of course, not all of them, because you are a human being. You cannot overcome all the challenges. So that we can learn from him. Because, like I said, he's a great individual that we should learn from. So, but what do you see to be his challenges or the biggest challenges at the time? The, um, one of the biggest cha challenges at the time for Marcus Gabby, in the Caribbean, that is, um, was the fact that he was operating within the colonial context of the British Empire. And in that colonial context, um, 
the broad masses of the people did not have um, the political and democratic um, participation that would be necessary um, for them to take hold of their own destinies. They did not have that. They would have to fight for it. So that was one of um, one of the impediments. Um, that was an impediment that we saw later on, um, especially in the 1930s and 40s. There was an attempt to deal with and to um, a very significant extent, we were able to do it and we were able to achieve reforms within the system of government, right? Within the system of um, democracy. Um, but even now, that system um, is still very circumscribed by the fact that outside of our borders, there are these overarching, there are these overarching um, um, powers, um, which of course um, feel that we cannot, um, we, we cannot operate on our own. Um, we are just areas um, for them to extract wealth from, and so we have to be kept in check. So that is one of the impediments of, of, um, that Gavi faced, um, an impediment that we still have today, albeit um, in a different and perhaps in a more pervasive way. So we still have to deal with this. Um, the other um, impediment was, um, is whether, of course, our organizations are equipped from the standpoint of the way we do things to really deal with this. These, this was one of the issues where um, Marcus Garvey's UNIA as an organization, this is one of the things that affected it. So whereas um, Marcus Garvey's mobilizational skills spread across the Caribbean, into Central America, into North America, whereas he reached out um, to the diaspora around the world, mobilizing, right, um, organizing even, but I didn't, I don't think enough um, attention was paid to how that organization continued to relate to the challenges of the time. And that is one of the, the areas that I think in, in our various countries, um, in, 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 in the diaspora across the world, um, at the level of the, the, the various political organizations, organizations of activism, our, our universities, our, our institutions of learning, um, our systems of trade, our systems of finance, I think all of that, um, it is within um, these areas. Again, we say it is very complex, but it is within these areas that we have to um, that that we have to focus, or else um, we are missing the point. As far as you are concerned, as far as you can see, how do the people of the African diaspora look at Marcus Garvey many years after he has gone? What does he represent for us? I, I think, um, generally speaking, the people in the diaspora, even right here in the Caribbean and across the world, I think Marcus Garvey um, is actually looked upon as somebody of historical note, somebody of historical note, not much more than that. And I don't think enough attention is being paid 
to not just to his life, but in what he he brought to uh, the the ideas, um, the liberation of the people. He's somebody still right now historically in the distance. As I say here, you will hear in the Caribbean people talk about him. Um, usually, the people in the Rastafari movement and and other people, but I still think that we have not really um, studied and focused on the full legacy of Lacascal. Thank you so much for that, sir. That is very important. It's very important to point it out. In fact, that is why we decided to talk about him today, his life and legacy. Because, like I said, um, I think even studying his organizational ability should have been enough, should have been one reason why Every child in Africa should know of Marcos Garvey. And every, of course, in the diaspora, sometimes we're not a child of the education. But of course, even the education is changing now because now you can educate yourself if you want to. We have access to the internet. All the information are on the internet. Why not help yourself to teach yourself and teach your children mm -hmm. about what you want to learn? Because like I said, I came to Italy and where I am today before I know of Marcos Garvey, but I have to help myself. Everybody needs to help his or herself. We don't need to rely on the colonial education uh, to say, okay, now I know it all. No, you don't know. You know what they want you to know in the educational system. For you to know more, you need to teach yourself what you want to know. What would you suggest as a strategy to, be, to make sure that we learn more about him and about other people like him in the diaspora? What should we do? How should we do this? Despite... Despite the internet, despite the opportunities that the internet gives us, the doors to information that it opens, we are faced with a phenomenon where there are still certain powers with the monopoly of ideas. So it would mean that, so whereas on an individual basis, you and I can access information, I think it is going to take a more organized effort. I think to a very large extent, the people, um, we have to put pressure on the people we elect in our various um, countries across the diaspora who are the ones who determine what the curriculum is? Who are the ones who de um, determine um, the ideas that we interface with in, the, in um, our various countries, um, um, within our various educational systems? That pressure has to be put on these people to include that kind of, of, um, that kind of knowledge um, within our curricula. Um, only, only recently, um, our government has, here in St. Lucia, has indicated its intention to introduce um, into schools the history of Africa, um, the history of the Caribbean as it is connected to Africa. The history of the Caribbean as it is connected to all of the people 
who were relocated through indenture, um, through slavery, um, um, to the Caribbean. The history of, of the, 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 the genocide of the first peoples in our region, the Kalinago, and so on, in, infuse our education system with this. But it has to be something that is going to be done at the policy level because where I, because I do not think it is sufficient for just you or I. Whereas on our own volition, of course, we can go and, and access this and access that, of course. But because of the mon monopoly of ideas, information, and media by the very colonial sources that we have had for, for hundreds of years now, because of that, um, there is that tendency um, um, for these sources to block out what we need to know, although, uh, although what we need to know is there. So there must be a deliberate policy on the part of those people whom we elect to take care of our business. There must be that deliberate policy, and we must pressure these people to um, um, to develop these policies in our various countries. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, thank you so much for that. All right, now, what would you say is the, um, is the re-achievement and the true legacy of Marcos Garvey? What do you think people should remember him for? I think what Marcos Garvey is essentially remembered for is that um, he was a black nationalist, a pan-Africanist, who brought an, an awareness of the people of the Caribbean and the people of the world for the need for, according to Bob Marley, Africa to unite. And to unite to over, overcome our oppression, our deprivation. Um, he, the idea was that um, he gave us that consciousness of it. And I think Marcus Garvey, having given us that consciousness of it, that is he, along with other, um, other streams um, that we got, that, that we like the, the, um, the Aimé Césaire, the Franz Fanon's, um, um, who in their own way contributed to that stream um, even later on, um, the streams that led to, to, to the Black Power Movement in the United States, which also swept um, the Caribbean, um, the, um, the streams that led to the National Liberation Movements in, 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 in various parts of Africa, right? Um, all of these, right? When we, we, um, we look at all of these, I think um, we can appreciate what Marcus did within that context. And it is for us now to take the baton from there forward to ensure that the unfinished business of decolonization um, occurs. Because um, independence for African countries, Caribbean countries, Asian countries that have been on, under colonization, um, formal independence, is only, in my view, one-tenth of the story. To use a term 
the struggle continues and there's unfinished business and that unfinished business will take many forms and one of the forms it will take is the form of re-educating ourselves um, in the wellspring, the sources of our struggle and freedom. And I, and to quote again, Amilcar Cabral, which I quoted earlier on, we have to return to that source. And in returning to that, that source, um, drink from the wellsprings and then equip ourselves to continue that struggle which Marcus and his forebears began. Thank you so much, dear George. Thank you. I appreciate the time, man. Also, the, the, the sharing. Is there anything you would like to add to it? I've asked you everything I wanted to ask you. Not, not necessarily. I think what I want to, um, to impress upon all of us is that there is a need. We have not arrived. We have not, we are not even halfway there. We see the events that un unfold in the world. We see the domination that is unfolding in the world. We see the domination of, 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 of the, um, the financial systems of the world. We see um, the domination of the trade systems of the world. We see that um, within organizations like the WTO, they write the rules for us. We see that even right, for example, here, like um, the World Bank, they write the rules. Caribbean Development Bank um, is, is, is circumscribed by, by the World Bank. We see all of this. And that should teach us that we are not yet there, not by a long shot, and that our shoulders will have to be put to the wheel to continue that struggle until we achieve what we are looking forward to. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. It will really be an honor to talk to you, and it has been a pleasure to learn uh, a lot of things from you. Thank you, sir. And, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. Thank you. It's been an honor here. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.